Well, we get that wonderful opportunity to talk a little bit about doing all the good we can, and I thought we might start by thinking together about what is good. This morning at 522, I woke up because my alarm for the first time in five years was not set on my watch to wake me up at 5 o'clock on Sunday morning. So at 522, I emerged from bed, only for the first time that I woke up late, the very first time that I woke up late, um, there was no self-recrimination. There was no judgment. There was no kicking myself. There was no spending the first 20 minutes of my sit thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't live up to what I was supposed to live up to. I didn't get up at 5 o'clock this morning. You know, the rule I had set for myself was broken, and it was okay. It was okay because God's goodness was not affected by my getting up at 522 instead of at 5 o'clock. Uh, and neither was the time of my sit with God. It might have been 22 minutes shorter, but perhaps my body said, you need 22 minutes of extra sleep. And perhaps last night as I went to bed, I completely forgot because my daughter's in town visiting and we were enjoying her company to now that's not blaming, that just is so excited for me, you know, it was all about me, uh, you know, that I forgot to turn on the alarm on my watch. Uh, you know, it used to be I had to, it was automatically set every week, and I'm sure there's some magical way I could probably tell my watch that I want it to go off every week, it's five o'clock in the morning, and then we'll be on vacation sometime, as I used to discover, and we'll be on vacation and I can sleep in on a Sunday morning, and at five o'clock, you know, starts going off. So. The truth is, I'll remember, I won't remember, this morning at 522, though, there was no recrimination because this week as I've thought about God and where God is in the midst of this idea of good, I knew that it was all good. As I woke up at 522, it was fine. So there was no jumping out of bed and rushing around. I emerged from bed in my normal speed, slid on my slippers, put on my fleece to go downstairs and sit in my chair my cup of coffee, glass of water, and finish my banana. So it all works out. Now, if you want to think about, before we get to today's scripture passage, which I've chosen from uh, Paul's letter to uh, the Philippians, I, I want you to think with me for a moment about goodness. Where does goodness come from? And if you want to go back to the origins of what we have as a sacred text, the very first chapter of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible, God makes everything, and pretty much as the thing is being made, God looks at it and says, that's pretty good. That's good. That's good. And then finally on the sixth day, before God takes a day off, a Sabbath, on the sixth day after making human beings in God's image, God looks at him and says, not only is that good, that's very good. So the origin of goodness is from God. And because God has made everything that is, everything at its core is good. Now we have that wonderful story that sort of emerges uh, several chapters later in the first book of the Bible where human beings decided that they wanted to know for themselves what good and evil was. They couldn't be satisfied just to live in the goodness. They needed to find a way to figure out. They wanted to know what's good and what's evil. They didn't realize that if they just went through their daily lives, did what they were supposed to do, and were who they were supposed to be, that was good. 
So, you know, they decided they would do that one thing God said don't do, eat that tree. Now, whether there was a little tree or not, I don't care. Some people do. If you do, I want you to be having a literal tree with some fruit on it. Whether it's an apple or whatever else, that's fine. But whatever it was, that rebellious need on our part to know the difference between good and evil began this long process that now exists in our world where we're constantly trying to define what is good and what is evil. And oftentimes, we start from the side of evil. And the truth is, that's the wrong side to start from. Because evil is just a distortion of good. Evil is a distortion of good. I can remember growing up, my grandmother used to tell me important uh, stories of her childhood, whether they were important or not. They were always interesting to me. And she was growing up in Missouri, and she was a hard-shell Baptist. And they were not allowed to play cards on Sunday. They were not allowed because cards are the devil's tool. That's what she told me. Cards are the devil's tool. And I thought, you know, this is the same grandmother that taught me how to play bridge. <laughs> you know, and what do you play bridge with? Cards. <laughs> you know, rummy. She taught me to play rummy. All of these kinds of things. So she must have gotten past the thought that cards, are cards in and of themselves evil? They're pieces of, uh, they're pieces of cardboard. You know, laminated paper that have little symbols on them. I suppose if you gamble away your house, then they have become evil. They have become a tool of evil. But prior to that, if you don't gamble away your house or gamble away your well-being or gamble away your car or gamble away your children or whatever you happen to be gambling with, you know, uh, you're probably not playing, you know, it's probably not evil. It's probably not evil. You know, probably... Uh, this is a violation of our doctrine as United Methodists, but I probably if you're playing penny poker at your house with pennies you got laying around, it's not a big deal. Although we United Methodists stand against gambling. But the reason we stand against gambling is because we see what it does when it takes people to the far end. And I saw that personally once when I was at a, I was driving up from Georgia, I was serving four churches in Georgia, and I stopped to get gas on my way back home to my parents' house. And I saw a person cash their social security check and spend every last penny of it. And the fact that the person behind the counter let them do it, you know, every last penny of it to buy lottery tickets. Every last penny of it to buy lottery tickets because the money that they had in their hand was not good enough, but maybe the multi-million dollars or maybe at the time it was probably multi-hundred thousands of dollars because that was way back, you know, in the ancient days when they had just invented the lottery. Uh, you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is anything can become evil when it's misused. Good things, everything else, though, at the core of its being, God looked at it and said, it is good. The ultimate desire we have is to fill that empty space inside of us, and that empty space is only fillable by God. We try to fill it with all these other pieces, and it's when we chase after those things, imagining they will fulfill us, that's when they become bad. When I think that a title, or a position, or a salary, or a car, or the size of my house, or the number of vacations I take, or any of those kinds of things could ever fill up the God-sized hole inside of me. That's when they become bad. 
because I keep chasing after those things thinking they'll fill me. And it might fill me the first time, at least a little bit. This is where addiction begins. If you haven't read the 12-step book, you know, uh, Breathing Underwater by Richard Rohr, it's a wonderful book because it captures the fact that we're all addicted. The first time you try it, oh, wow, that's great. But then suddenly you need more of it to get the high. And you keep doing more and more and more and hoping that you're going to get the high, only eventually you hit a plateau. And then it just becomes an escape from the reality that there's a God-sized hole inside of you. Addiction is just a good desire on your part taken to the extreme. That's when it becomes evil. That's when it sucks your life away. Paul says to the Philippians, and this is towards the end of his letter, in the fourth chapter, very, very near the end, he says, from now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent, if anything is good, if anything is admir admirable, focus your thoughts on those things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. Practice these things. Whatever you learned, received, or heard, or saw in us, the God of peace will be with you. Whatever is good, let your thoughts, focus your thoughts on those things. For me, the idea of doing all the good you can has to start with knowing that good emerges from the good God who made you, who made everything in this universe. And by everything, I mean everything. There is nothing, no galaxy, no nebula, no quark that God didn't have a hand in making. One might be a heck of a lot bigger than the others. You know, the bottom line, you know, bottom line is quarks are too small for us to see. Galaxies are uh, fairly big. You know, we can see the Milky Way with our naked eyes if you go to a place that has no light pollution. You can see. You can see the Milky Way uh, and the remnants. With a telescope, heck, you can see beautiful uh, images of those things far, far away. And they look small because they're far away. You know, but the truth is they're huge, way huger than that quark. But in the end, God made it all. And it's all good. It's all good if we would stop distorting it for our own evil purposes sometimes. If we would stop thinking that somehow that house, that car, that boat, that train, that relationship, that title, that salary could ever define us. Could ever define us. Because the only thing they can is, is God. And God already defines you as the loved one. God looks at each one of you and says, that's my beloved. That's my beloved. My beloved, the one whom I love. And nothing less than love can define you. So, if you're going to do all of the good you can, well, part of it is focusing your mind. Now, of course, I was intrigued. You know, we're growing this series out of what John Wesley had to say. So, I printed for you in the printed update a copy of all the things he had to say about doing good. Uh, this is after last week's Do No Harm, and as we know, the United Methodist Church decided in the, 
you know, he wrote the stuff that he wrote in, the, in this whole thing in the 1700s. And part of the Methodist church decided to just throw it into the trash because part of the do no harm included no owning of other human beings or buying or selling them. And we United Methodists, we Methodists split over that issue in the United States back in the 1800s. And part of the church went one way and said it was fine to own people. And the other part went another way and said, it's not okay. Uh, you know, not everybody figures it all out at the same time. I guess it's hard to see how that is possible. But so he goes on to say the second rule, which is do all the good you can, essentially. By doing good, by being in every kind merciful after your power, as they have opportunity, doing good of every possible sort and as far as possible to all humanity, to their bodies, he goes on, lists the ways to their bodies, to their souls, to, you know, by doing good, especially to them that are the household of faith or wishing they could be part of the household of faith. Uh, by all possible diligence and frugality that the gospel not be blamed, by running with patience the race that is set before them, denying themselves, taking up their cross daily, submitting to bear the reproach of Christ, etc., etc. These are the things that John Wesley had to say. Now, his approach is, is, is perfect for the 17th century. <laughs> His approach about doing good is perfect for the 17th century. But it leaves me questioning, what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to practice good? You know, I think you have to start with knowing who you are. Not what your labels or titles are. Because the labels are just descriptors about you. I happen to be a father. Does that make me any better or worse than anyone else? What is the first thing people ask you when they meet you? What do you do? You know, and you tell them what you do. And supposedly, somehow, that helps them glean who you are. But all that it is is a bunch of labels. I could begin to, you know, I wrote down in the middle of this week a list of all the labels that are attached to me by myself or by other human beings in the world. And in my journal, it took up three lines. And I don't write very large in my journal. Three lines of all the labels that are attached to me. Pastor, friend, father, son, uh, cousin, uncle, husband, uh, contemplative, mystic, spiritual, uh, mean, you know, uh, driver, licensed. Uh, you know, could just go on. All of these little titles. And what do they really mean? In order for you to be you. In order for you to reflect the goodness of God, you need to figure out who you are. What is the goodness God made you to do in this world? What is the goodness you were created to be in this world? And how will you let that flow through you in the way that you live? How will that goodness flow through you? Beyond your titles, beyond all of those kinds of things, you know, Mom perhaps paid me the highest compliment I've ever received in my life when I was young. When I was very, when I was in high school, one day we were sitting down uh, talking to each other. And she said, you know, Jamie, which is what she called me because that was my family name. You know, Jamie, what I appreciate most about you is you treat 
the janitor no different than the pastor, than the principal, than I suspect the president, if you happen to meet him or her, that they're all just people, and you treat them all like they're just people. Now see, what would it happen? What would it look like? You know, I, I asked this question, what would it look like if this were in this world we live, if we really lived and did no harm? Last week, I asked that question. What would it really look like if you saw in each person you met the image of God? The image of God. And you know, I'm not talking theoretically. I'm talking about the glowing image of God because everyone you meet is made in that image. How would you treat that person? Would you treat them by their title? Or would you treat them as sacred to God simply because they were? Do you think less of a person who is dressed poorly than you do of a person who's dressed well? Well, chances are pretty good growing up in this country. Yes, you do. You wear that to church? You wear that out in public? You know, I get that periodically from members of my household. You're not going out in public like that, are you, Dad? <laughs> I never said that to Hannah. But uh, she has once or twice said that to me, Ed, long ago. She never does. She's past that now. So she doesn't say that. But there was a time when, especially if we were going out together, when she would be like, are you going out like that? <laughs> what? Well, first of all, your shirt is too tightly tucked in. Pull that out a little bit. You know, it just looks bad. It looks bad. That should be, roll up your sleeves. And you don't need to have your buttons buttoned all the way to the top, Dad. It, it looks like you're uptight. It looks like I'm cold and I need my buttons to button all the way to the top. That's what it looks like because I'm a reptile. You know, that's what it looks like. But so I don't button all the way to the top. You know, the truth is all those labels that we see each other with are just that, labels. And they have no meaning at all. They have no meaning at all except to the label maker in your brain. The label you put on yourself and the label you put on the other people have no meaning at all. And oftentimes, instead of being good, they are bad. They are bad because they are dividers. There's an us and them. How many times have I grown up in a Christianity that is really quick to define the them out there? And you know why we like to divide the thems from the us's? It's because if we can find some thems that are worse than us, that makes us better. Everything's about a comparison. Labels. What's the difference between a, you know, a pastor and a bishop? Well, bishops are better. I've met some. Not so, not so true. But um, I've also met some that, like I thought, were Jesus-y. Totally Jesus-y. Bishop Young Jin Cho, if you walked near that boy, it felt like Jesus was oozing onto your skin. You had to get away a little bit because... There was that much Jesus oozing off of him. And it still does when I see him, retired man that he is. He oozes Jesus not because he was a bishop. He oozes Jesus because he was Young Jin Cho. And he was connected with God. And he understood that connection. You can ooze Jesus. I don't care what your title is. I don't care where you are in your stage of life. I don't care how old or young or tall, short, fat, skinny. You can ooze Jesus, and that's how you do good. You ooze Jesus by being the you God made you to be. 
Yes, we could make lists of ways you could do good. John Wesley had lists. He was a listy boy. He and I don't completely, you know, John Wesley would have met me and say, that boy is frivolous. <laughs> he is caught up in stuff that is not a list. He also knew that in his favor, he gave us a list of things to do because he was afraid if we didn't have the list, we might not do it. He said it was important that we educate all people. So Methodists build schools. There are Methodist schools everywhere because we believe in education. We believe in helping people learn so they can become whoever they expect to be. We, uh, we believe in caring for the poor. You know, we should probably ask the question why there are poor. <laughs> But we, you know, that's a question that labels us differently. It's a wonderful quote from a bishop in South America who said, I feed the poor and they call me great. I ask why they're poor and they call me communist. <laughs> you know, uh, it's easy if we label somebody, call somebody a communist in our country, and you shut down every conversation about them. Why? Because communism is bad. Never mind that the earliest church practiced communism. They shared everything in common. Now, I'm not, I'm not purporting to you that we should become communists. But you throw a label on something, you no longer even have to have a conversation. If I label you, I can avoid you. I don't even have to deal with you. You're an immigrant. Well, you're from somewhere else. Well, the bottom line is, unless you're Native American, every single one of you is an immigrant somewhere back in your history. You're just a legal immigrant. Although, if we ask the Native Americans about that, some of them might question whether we were really legal about that. But that's a question we're not going to ask today, because it's too big. What kind of good can you do with your life other than being the you God made you to be? What other good can you do than being the you God made you to be? I'm going to use an example. It's going to embarrass somebody, but that's okay. Upon finding our church here at St. James, Grayson became a part of the band and faithfully has been here every week. Except when he was sick or on travel or not available or working or... <laughs> Okay, come on. I mean, for the most part, he's been here. Today is Grayson's last Sunday because he's moving on. His family is moving on, uh, not immediately. But for Grayson, today is the last day. Now, for some of us, we'll get to see Grayson again because he's coming to Appalachian Service Project. So that's a reason for all of you to sign up to come on Appalachian Service Project because you can see Grayson. I'm just telling you, just telling you right now. Uh, just a shameless plug. But as I think about him singing his song among us, playing the guitar on a Sunday morning, letting that sing out amongst us and being that voice, I think that's good. See, I think that's good. Now, each one of you let your voice sing out in different ways among us. Some of it's by singing. Some of it's by teaching Sunday school. Some of it's 
by coming to Centering Prayer. Some of it is by praying for this congregation when you're not here. Some of it is by giving financially to the church. There are so many ways that you sing your song amongst us. I chose to single out Grayson partially because Grayson is leaving today. So there's really no defense. Next week he can't call me out because he won't be here. So he's headed off to college. He graduated yesterday. had another Grayson just graduated last week, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So, two Graysons. But the truth is, we all get the opportunity to do the good, all the good we can, if we drop the labels, see past the labels, and live the good that God made us to live. Through trusting that God wants to shine through you, through trusting in the goodness that God is willing to give to you if you trust in God. You can reflect, be a mirror in your everyday life by being the person God made you to be. Because when God made you, in conjunction with your parents, when God made you, you can almost hear the eternal echo somewhere off in the universe. one of you, that's good. Yeah. And it's unique. No two of us alike. Can you imagine a universe filled with all this uniqueness and yet all held together by the power of God's love for us? That's good. That is good. So, if you're going to do all the good you can, let your mind dwell on goodness all the things you know to be good. Trust that Jesus wants to work through you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then get past all the labels that have been put on you by you and by others. And simply be the person you meant to be. I don't know what higher praise you can think of So, my assignment for you this week, first of all, I want you to write down every label that you have been labeled with, by yourself or by your parents or by your teachers, and ask the question, how have those labels shaped you, for good and for evil? You know, if somebody said, man, you've, you're just holy. How has that made you aspire to holiness? And how has that made you feel bad about yourself when you dropped the ball? So, labels don't have to be bad necessarily, but they're not who you are. I want you to write down your labels, where they came from, and imagine what you would look like below those labels, underneath the labels, the real you. When have you really felt your purpose? Eric Little ran in the Olympics in the early 1900s. He wouldn't run on Sunday. 
competed. He competed. And one of the things he's quoted as saying is, when he ran, you know, his sister tried to convince him that he should just preach. That should be his whole life, just preaching. Because he was a great preacher. People came to hear him from all over. He said, but when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. Where do you feel God's pleasure? Because chances are that's part of where God made you to be. So be about that. Let this week be a week of discerning. And you know what's good. Do it.